Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Additionally, in this episode, my friend Lars Doucet joins us as a co-host. Well, Ed, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm absolutely fine. How are you? Doing great. Uh, thanks again for joining us again for round two. Kind of a first it's guest we've had uh, to do that, which is it's awesome to have you, Ed. We really appreciate no you. Wow, that's, uh, that's an honor. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, do you mind just giving us a, a brief bio for the guests who might not have met you before? Well, I write the Substack Wrong Side of History, uh, which I've been doing for now for, uh, I don't know, 10 months or something. Uh, before that, I was unheard. And I also wrote for uh, but the, the UK Sectator and the Daily Telegraph, all, all of the basically, you know, all the reactionary publications. Um, <laughs> but now, yeah, I move on Substack. So that's going really well. I write, you know, I write about politics and um, with a kind of history flavor. That's my main thing. I, I suppose my characteristic is I'm quite known for being pessimistic. Uh, but, you know, I think I'm being proved right at the moment. So, you know, you know, all those like prophets who, you know, always talk about doom, eventually they're going to be proved right. And, and I think 2022 is uh, my lucky year. What What are all the things you're getting proved right about? Oh, and I mean, just generally, well, I, I've been on, I was on holiday in Spain on, uh, recently. I just couldn't, you know, when you're on holiday and you just can't resist looking at Twitter and it's like, I know this is ruining my holiday. I'm supposed to be away from this. I just can't help but read the news and even though I'm in this lovely setting by the sea in the Mediterranean. And I just need to be a little depressed right oh yeah, now. Yeah, it's just a gas thing. The, the, economy, the economy is, um, I mean, the economy in Britain is looking very bad. Like the gas price situation for us is like, they're talking about pints. Like a pint of beer is like six pounds in London and like a northerner wouldn't pay more than like four pounds 50 and they'll get really upset about that. Um, but now they're talking about pints costing 20 pounds if, if the pubs are going to survive. They, they say that two thirds of pubs aren't able to survive the winter. Just the price of energy is like unbelievably skyrocketed. It's like nothing before. So we can, you know, there's talk about doing a cap um, and for the government to pay people's energy bills. But I mean, it's it's kind of it's a bit Latin American the whole thing. It's it's kind of heading towards default territory. So uh, I mean, it's it's generally quite scary the whole thing. Is it because of the war? Yeah, it's Putin's fault basically. I mean, um, it didn't help. I mean, a lot of our economy was in a bit of bad shape before anyway. So it was a bit of a you know, the analogy is, you know, they didn't fix the roof when the sunshine's coming. Um, and we've, we, I don't think we've had any growth since 2007. I mean, if you're reading about the British economy is, is quite a, quite a, I mean, around 2007, around the time of the crisis, Britain and America weren't that far apart in terms of GDP per capita. Now it's like way different. And we've had almost no growth since then. We've basically done the same as Italy, which is 20 years of, of no growth, nothing. And the same fact, you know, it's sort of same end result which is sort of lots of people in their 30s and 40s living with their parents and i kind of just don't and you know we don't even have the, the nice food and the nice weather i mean we've got the same we're like you know we've had like our fourth prime minister in six years now which is you know very again very italian and um you know she's come into power in a really really difficult time so i mean i wouldn't want to it's not the best time to be taken over uh and you know what i have now is it looks much more sort of um sort of worrying than even the financial crisis and much more worrying than COVID. What are some things that led you here? What, what for Britain? Yeah, for, or for, well, for, for Britain yeah. in specific. <laughs> um, I mean, Britain has, well, I mean, obviously the uh, one obvious fact is Brexit has definitely made everyone poorer because um, over half our trade is with the, the European continent and it's just it, it might all fix itself and you know i, I think it, the, the brexiteers argument is like in 15 20 years time we're going to have much more freedom with the regulation and actually start to pay off and, and that may be true i mean i don't know um you know but the, the problem is like in the short term we're all alive and it's going to be a, a rough few years and it's something that people are very divided over not only half population voting no but of those who voted for brexit there was a huge variety of different ideas about what it meant so there are you know it's almost like the different religious sects, they just break up and then when they break up and then break up. Um, so there's, there's not really the will. So people people might endure suffering and pain and like poverty if they have an idea of what they're going to get at the end and if they know what they want. 
I'd have to believe in it. But when there's um, with Brexit, we're not even sure what we, you know, what, what our aim is, what kind of country we want to be, who we want to be aligned to. Um, so there's all sorts of divisions which aren't necessarily like left or right. Um, but in the meantime, you know, it's like just traveling to France in the summer, which, you know, the whole English middle class all go to the south of France in their cars um, when summer times comes. And, you know, they all get stuck in Dover trying to cross over. Uh, it's all very frustrating. But there are, you know, all sorts of other things. You know, uh, we have the kind of one of the worst housing situations in, you know, in Europe, in the world. I mean, I know all the other English-speaking countries have problems, uh, but in the States, it is slightly, at least a bit more localised than cities. Uh, but, you know, London is basically, London is sort of almost on somewhere between San Francisco and um, maybe a bit less than San Francisco in terms of unaffordability. And London is basically where all the jobs are in, in Britain, in, in most industries. So imagine, like, San Francisco is the only option in terms of um, affordability. It's impossible to basically break the housing situation to build more houses because the kind of political system means that, you know, you know, the Tory party is, is very elderly now. So it's very controlled by NIMBYism. So most the average Tory voter has their own house. Many of them are retired. There's no real incentives for them to uh, allow um, new buildings. So that that's basically, that's another big block fact. I, I think another thing is just basically, um, we're very overregulated, uh, and also I think we're just getting older, like everyone else. Um, you know, the, the Blair thing was the Blair government; they had a lot of immigration um, for you know for economic reasons. But again, it was just you know now, twenty years later, a lot you know these immigrants are all old as well, um, and now we're just like, okay, what do we do now? The population is aging, and on an aging population, inevitably, there are some economic you know consequences of that. There aren't sort of enough sort of young, dynamic people. It's really noticeable if you go to parts of England like the southwest. Everyone's so unbelievably old, you know. But I mean, that's the problem everywhere. I've just been in East, in, in Romania actually, and you know, and that's a kind of similar thing. You can see areas that are quite that feel quite depopulated, which is the kind of thing you get where you know people are going from the poorer parts of Europe and away, and they're all sort of congregating in the wealthier parts where there isn't enough housing to sort of you know to make a nice life. So yeah, things are looking quite quite bleak at the moment. Ed, Ed, if you had to pick just one, you know, policy lever, you know, uh, we should all just start jumping up and down on as hard as we can to, to start getting this thing back, you know, this train back on the tracks in, in the UK, let's say in particular, what does that look like? Is it, is it street votes at the local level to kind of fix zoning, maybe increase housing supply? Is it, is it something else? Is it just encouraging people to have more kids? Uh, is it rejoining the EU or is it, do you have any thoughts there? Um, I mean, I would say street votes. I mean, I don't know if you know about the Lars. It's just, um, I'm sure it's just been... If you could describe it for our audience, that would be great, yeah. Well, street yeah. votes is an idea um, that it was actually basically the brainchild of a friend of mine called Ben Southwood, who worked for a think tank, um, Policy Exchange. And it basically means where there's a street um, of quite low-density houses in an urban area, the entire street can vote to up-densify it. So at the moment, the planning regulations. So if you live in... A, Say, if you live in Zone 5 and 6, which is the outskirts of London, um, there are a lot of sort of low-density streets with either bungalows or two storeys, which are very uh, spaced out. And if you have one of these and you want to extend and build a house, you you can't do that, obviously, because your neighbours would object to you um, and, and all the kind of regulations stop it. But under this system, the entire street can vote on whether they all densify. So that will go from one storey to either three or four storeys. Uh, and they all vote on a plan... On a, on a, uh, an architectural plan as well, so that kind of the most popular type of housing gets built, uh, and that way, uh, you know, the, the NIMBYs because obviously everyone, everyone, most people are NIMBYs for totally rational reasons. Because if your neighbour builds a big house, it makes your house less valuable because no one wants to live next to big houses and uh, more people. But this way, it means that everyone financially benefits from there being more housing. So the so the whole the whole street gets rich. So if there's like a sixty percent vote, then you can turn um, these low density things into sort of you know bigger blocks, um, and that would densify London. And I think there's there's something like two million more properties could be built. I, I don't know what the exact figure is. Um, that that seemed like the best idea. And the government, the last government, did kind of. I think that you know I I think it might happen still. But the problem is the government's changing so much at the moment. I mean, that's supported by Michael Gove, who's 
like by far the most like intelligent of all the cabinet ministers very effective like wherever he uh whichever department he ran he, he always did quite a good job and, and you know and the rest of them aren't like particularly talented so and now he's gone though so i don't know what happened but that's i mean housing is the most like you know important one. I, I mean my, my when my so when i don't know if i mentioned this last time will but my, my daughter had their leaving do when they all the kids at the leaving assembly at primary school age 11 and they all talk about like what they're going to do when they're older, like how they see themselves in 10 years time. And they all said about one, they said, I want to have my, you know, I'm going to be in my own flats. And I was just thinking like, none of you, I didn't want to say it, none of you are going to own flats. Like, like be realistic about this. It's like never going to happen. You're not going to own flats when you're 40, let alone when you're 21. Uh, and that's like a dream that's, um, that's kind of completely disappeared. And compared to like my parents' day, you know, my mum came to um, London in the sixties and she from Ireland and she, you know, she originally like a secretary and she lived in, Hampstead, which is like impossibly upmarket. I mean, it was impossibly upmarket when I was growing up for a, for a secretary. Um, you know, and that, it's like where the Monty Python cast all live. It's like really expensive. But okay, but more generally, if you went into sort of London in the 60s when it was like swinging, like it was incredibly filled with young people because like young people would live there. And, and it, you know, the, uh, even the statistics on the number of young people who lived within zones one to three was like starting place now. Now it's just really old. Um, so I, I feel like it's, now my concerns are like less about me and more about my children and you know how, what kind of world they're going to live in. I, I do feel sorry for them. They're going to miss out on this like normal, you know, normal young person's experience. It should be. Do you think any of those young people are going to be driven out of Britain entirely? Uh, I don't know. I talk. I mean, or what do you think they're going to do? I mean, most of the options is so most of, most of um. So you know, this the the remain the remain campaign often said about yeah our chance to go and live in Europe. But, I mean, most British people go and live in English speaking countries because. Speaking English, uh, you know, Australia and Canada rather, have, and the States are basically, and New Zealand, those four basically the bulk. Um, I mean, Australia, Australia is quite strict about immigration. And I think, I mean, I think the kind of housing situation is kind of a problem amongst all the English speaking world. Ireland's got a, I mean, a, you know, Ireland's got something like absurd the other day. There's like something like 80 available flats to rent left in the whole country. I mean, like there was a queues of they showed pictures of queues of people queuing up for this one bedroom flat or something. Um, I think it's maybe something just to do with the kind of governance and culture, which is maybe uh, maybe it's. I mean, like the English speaking world has this um, has this very strong tradition now of like homeowners having rights, which prevents other homeowners from building. And I, and I think maybe that might um, be part of the problem. I mean, France. I mean, France has its troubles, but they don't really have nimbyism in the same way. Just because their whole thing is like, okay, you don't, you don't want like this, you know, ra- railway being put through your back garden. But you know, tough because <laughs> like Paris says so, and you know, I'm the heir of Louis the Fourteenth. I can do whatever I like. So you know, maybe there is something about, uh, yeah, just kind of the Anglophone culture of freedom, which makes out, and it's it's basically you know, described as like a Gordian knot. It can't it can't be broken because there's just no democratic mandate for breaking it. Uh, and older people, I mean, older people, you know, like it's, it's a tragedy of commons. So like, all, older people, they mostly want grandchildren. So they want their own grandchildren, you know, they want their own children to be able to have children, but it doesn't make any sense for them just to allow their own area to be developed. Mm. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, as for like other things, I mean, I don't know the power station thing is depressing. There was a video going around Nick Clegg, who is, I mean, there's no reason you'd heard him in the States. He's a complete, like, non-entity, really. I think he works on Facebook, though. And he was Deputy Prime Minister of Britain, and, and there's a video of him going around 2010 saying, well, there's no point building power stations because, you know, we wouldn't even get anything since until 2022. So <laughs> look, you've us now. It's like, well, thanks for that. I mean, there's, uh, you know, like an aversion to building infrastructure, which is a, a problem here, which I think is kind of related um to th- we, we've just i think one of our major power stations just been shut down because of and we've you know basically failed to build any new ones and, and now that you know we've been dependent on you know unfortunately most of the natural resources of the world are controlled by quite bad regimes and now one of them is kind of like our enemy and there's nothing we can do about it so yeah, I mean, I think the optimistic thing is maybe like a crisis is sometimes needed. Like whether it's like in someone's personal life or whether country, sometimes you need to get to a crisis point before people think actually this needs to be resolved. Uh, and maybe optimistically, you know, like the power situation, like the natural resources. Now we probably will invent invest more in nuclear energy and in 
um, you know, renewables because we have to. And, and now this is a vision of our future where we can't rely on countries like Russia to, to supply all our needs. I mean, the, the only good thing is, that, I mean, if you're Norway now, I mean, you're laughing, absolutely. Right. You know, just I mean, they're already loaded as anything. Now they're going to be the, the, the only sort of sort of reasonably reasonable country in Europe which has all these kind of. Resources. It's funny you say that because I'm I'm actually Norwegian. I'm a oh, right. My mom's an immigrant. I'm a citizen. I, I happen to be born in Texas, but I, I was just up there visiting my family, and it's it's kind of interesting listening to Norwegians complain right now, and then like talking to what are they complaining about? <laughs> Stuff's a little more expensive than it used to be. Um, but uh, but it's only like ten pounds a pint for a beer there. I mean, it's like incredibly. Right. I went. I went there earlier this year. It's like wow. I mean, it really is expensive. But I guess what well, their average income is like ninety thousand dollars a year. Right. It, it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> you know, it, it's yeah. it's it's been interesting. Like talking to some of my other friends in Europe who are like, I'm not sure I'm going to make it through the winter. And like, I'm I'm not trying to slag off my Norwegian friends and family, but like, I think we we have something to be grateful for compared to the entire rest of Europe right now. They've, um, but yeah, again, they they have also, you know, saved during the good times. Right. You know, they've got their sovereign part. I mean, also, they're, they're blessed with resources, but lots of countries are blessed with resources and make a complete mess of things. So, well, well, so like, I'd love to talk to you about that because you've just got this great political analysis um, approach to things. So, like, I mean, doesn't Scotland and therefore the UK have access to, you know, Norway has access to these North Sea oil resources? But so does the UK. Yeah. I'm not sure if we split it 50-50 or if we got the good end of the stick. But I mean... I think Norway definitely has more. Or it definitely has... I mean, Norway's only like four and a half million people. Right, anyways. right. I mean, Britain's 70 million. Yeah, but you got access to any of it. And you've had access to a bunch of other stuff, this whole legacy of the British Empire and things, you know. Um, so... Well, we've lost that. Right, right, right. Well, that's gone now. Sadly. But um, one thing that I'd like to talk about is, since you mentioned natural resources, so I've spent a lot of time studying the Norwegian natural resource regime. I'd be interested in what you think about it, because um, the did you know that the Norwegian um, oil management system was set up by an Iraqi immigrant specifically to avoid the resource curse? No, I did not know that. That's very interesting. No, so there's this guy called Farouk al Qasim. Now, if you ask him personally, he'll probably push back on getting all the credit because there are other people involved too. But um, so basically, Norway discovers oil back in the 60s, 70s, you know, and they don't know what to do with it. They don't really have an established oil industry. And this Iraqi immigrant is there. He's married to a Norwegian woman. He came back to Norway for his son's health and he's looking for a job. And they're like, do you have any ideas what we should do with this oil Be now that you're asking for a job? And he's like, yes, I do. And he sits down and he hammers out this plan where he's like, the problem you're going to have is you're going to have the resource curse. You're going to let the Americans come in and do whatever they want. And they're going to take all the resource wealth out of your country because by the very act of regulating access to this resource, you're going to create, and the fact that it's a naturally scarce resource, you're going to create monopolies. And they're not going to be, not only are they going to charge whatever they like, they're also going to monopolize access to that resource. They're not necessarily going to be incentivized to develop it to the full extent. And so what I right. propose to avoid the resource curse I saw in Iraq with, uh, you know, is not to go full socialist nationalization and not to go full privatization, but you do... Um, what I would classify as a Georgist approach to natural resources. Farouk Al-Kassim never uses this word, but he basically reinvented the approach, which is you have a huge severance tax on oil that comes out of the pipe, but you have a huge subsidy on the exploration and discovery of the resource, right? It's kind of like, um, because the approach is basically like, if you're going to sit on an oil well, you're incentivized to basically be lazy. And to basically just capture resource nodes to keep them out of the hands of your competitors. But um, if we, so we should put a severance tax on that because it's the people's resource that you're you're essentially renting. Yeah. But if we do that at a hundred percent and just like cut it at that, there's this argument that it's like, well, it's really capital expensive to go get that resource. So what we should do is we should subsidize discovery and. Um, 
the argument is that, well, it seems to have worked really well because even my like hyper conservative, like American oil friends are like, yeah, the Norwegians are really good at this. You know, their technology and their investment is like, is like really advanced. So um, it seems to be a good way to manage natural resources. And what was really interesting is that apparently the hydro power industry is managed in the same way. Um, and that was set up 50 years earlier. And that was actually set up specifically by Norwegian Georgists in the early 1910s or so. Really? Um, what the Norwegians are kind of complaining about now is is basically the distribution of that resource wealth that supposedly belongs to the people. They're like, okay, shouldn't we be spending down some of this sovereign wealth fund? You know, if we're the owners of this resource, you know, some of them are complaining that we're selling it to Europe, you know, and then others are, you know, so, so there's debates about how do we distribute the wealth that belongs to the people. But, but in my opinion, it seems like that that's a smart way to run a resource regime. It seems smarter than the way we're doing it in America. But, you know, you're, you're the big political economy brain. What, what, do, what do you think of? I, I don't know enough about resources, really. I mean, I'm, I, mean I, I suppose I'm more interested in the culture. I mean, like, uh, presumably that, that could just never have worked in Iraq, for example. It wouldn't be possible. The culture is too different. I mean, Norway's been a United States, like one kingdom since about 900 AD. Uh, you know, it's very, well, we've been we've been a Danish or Swedish protectorate for most of that time. Yeah, but Norwegian identity has always been um, well. I mean, they. I mean, obviously. So I think the oldest states in, in Europe are probably Denmark and England, but Norway is around the same time. Yeah, you're right. It's it's, but it's always had a distinct identity, even when it's ruled by uh, the two other countries. Uh, I mean, I, I couldn't ever see a situation where Norway or like Denmark or Sweden gets oil when they're sort of like warring clans fighting over it. It's just a sort of. Um, I think. I mean, I don't even think the British, I don't know enough about North Korea's promotion. I know he's been basically stopped, I think, because it was like the hardest oil mm -hmm. to get. And now apparently that's not really making much sense. Um, all I would say is probably easier for like a smaller, much more cohesive country like Norway or, or you know, or similar Scandinavian country to manage this better. Than, yeah. Also, also uh, helps if you have a really smart guy come in right the minute you discover the resource before you've established anything. Just, I mean, a lot of that stuff is just like serendipity, right? The right, just the right man in the right place. I mean, it could have, they, it could have been a complete, they could have had like a Charles Ponzi turn up and, and, but I mean, I think even if that happens, I think eventually they probably would have, would have stumbled on on the right way of doing things. I don't know. It just seems I don't know. All those Scandinavian countries, whenever I go there, they all seem a bit like from an from a British point of view. This is like a really not a paradise, but you know, like they, they're very like trusting places. And when you and when you come back to to England, it's not. So they much. are they are very cohesive. They are a very high trust society. But I think at the same time, like I mean, we used to be bloodthirsty Vikings. So I don't think it's in our blood exactly. But on the other hand, you know, I do think there is something to be said for having a smaller unit of government. You know, Norway is famously not in the yeah. EU. We are in the European economic system, and we're subject to a lot of the same treaties. One unending debate in Norway is that basically we. We have all the obligations of the EU, but none of the representation. But, um, but I think that's the deal Britain's going to get eventually as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems to be the, the most likely thing, uh, which no one's entirely sure why, but you know, yeah. just whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. But um, isn't that, I mean, yeah. I mean, surely all the most bloodthirsty Scandinavian Vikings went to like Yorkshire, and that's why. <laughs> So chilled out in or, England. Oh, and actually Russia, the most like yeah, and Texas. I mean, isn't there actually a theory that amongst Scandinavian migration to America, this is like a semi-serious theory. There has been some sort of like selection effect. Yeah, well, I mean, there's this whole there's this went to Minneapolis and whatever. And, well, um, what it really happened was it was most of the poorer people who who were forced out. It was your right. second and your third sons um, who did didn't inherit land, um, who mostly yeah. were forced out to Minnesota. Like, I mean. I look at my own ancestry and I look at my mom's family and it's like, oh, we owned a farm. You know, that's probably why we got to stick around so long in the old country. And um, right. the other thing is that Norway, um, Nor Norway has consistently been one of the poorer of the three Scandinavian states. Um, one of the big things that kind of saved us was potatoes, of all things, um, a good 150 years ago. The, the, this group of people called the potato priests, Norwegian priests who just like got really evangelical about potato cultivation. I mean, cause like there's almost no arable land in Norway. That's why we had to steal yours no. for so long, you know, it, it's pure. Isn't it? I'm surprised they got in potatoes. I mean, like, you know, from an Irish perspective, obviously they have incredible, you know, uh, 
they can make the population grow fantastically, but obviously, like risky if you have one famine. Right, you know, right. And you don't want to put all your potatoes in one basket, but presumably, yeah, yeah. they're okay. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I know Norway and Norway and Sweden were quite poor until relatively recent, weren't they? Which I always find straight, like, I mean, like 1900. I mean, right. I suppose probably by the late 19th century, there's quite big civic life there well i think there was also like there was some historic land reform um around the turn of the century that i think had a lot to do with it because what's really funny is if you read norwegian folktales you can kind of get like the picture of it from like 1800s norwegian folktales they kind of end like this um and i'm 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 mixing two of them together here but this is not really all that exaggerated and then the young ash lad killed the evil landowning troll, cut off his head, went home with all his gold and silver, and using it, paid off most of his debts. <laughs> <laughs> that seems um, that seems left coded to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's like it's like literally like that. Like someone's like you're expecting like lived happily ever after, and like the punchline is paid off most of his debts. And then like these yeah. evil trolls are often like specifically landowners like over and over again, which is like really weird from a modern perspective, but kind of telling from like what the peasants were like writing stories about to each other about. Yeah. It must be a, a tough life. I went to, uh, I went to Denmark as well this year, the, the Borgen. Very nice. Very, it's just a kind of home, the whole, the whole model is basically compromise and reasonableness. Yeah, yeah. And I think even the room where they talk things out is called like the compromise room or something. <laughs> and there's all the signs and it's all about, that's just, you know, let's just make a reasonable kind of like, you know, model. You know, it's, everything is just avoid unnecessarily stupid, stupid conflicts. And um, yeah, I think it, I think it helps when you have just less people, you know what I mean? And um, I mean, we do we do have our conflicts. And I do think like I, I, as a Norwegian and a Texan, I think it's hilarious when my like lefty American friends like really fetishize Norway because there's a lot of things they right. get wrong about it, like. Um, I mean, it might just be that all my family is from kind of a more rural area of Norway, but like a lot of my Norwegian family is a lot more right wing than I think any of my lefty American friends like have an understanding is even possible in Norway, you know. That's the general rule though, isn't it? I mean, Europe is much more right wing than America in actually most ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, like Holland has its Bible Belt and I mean, France is very... Pretty quite xenophobic, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, quite a low trust society. I mean, Americans are much more evangelically uh, progressive. I mean, not on economics, but you know, on social issues. So, I mean, Norway is still quite religious, isn't it? Compared to most. Well, people? it's weird. It's like it was a theocracy on paper until quite recently. You know, with the well yeah yeah yeah. i mean still literally you know if you got the queen who's the head of the church of england like i mean we we disestablished the church kind of like a couple years ago but like so norway's really interesting and i think it's a really good example of the difference between the american and the european approach to religion so like there's the state lutheran church and um but what's funny about it is like most of the country are functionally atheist right or agnostic or you know into horoscopes and whatnot. Um, yeah. But you've got yeah. this really big state church that was like an organ of the government until like five seconds ago, you know, where like there was like a cabinet minister who's like the minister of school and church, you know, that's the same department for some reason, not anymore. But, um, and then in America at the same time, you've got actually like with that perspective coming from Norway, like American separation of church and state is actually pretty separated, but what's not so separated over here is church and culture. And that's what people who really are upset about, right. like, religious culture actually want. And so in Europe, you don't, I mean, in Norway, especially, like, until, like, even now, I would say you still don't have good separation of church and state. Like, people didn't even used to have separate birth certificates. You used to just have a baptismal record. And if you were a Jew, I guess things just were awkward, you know. Um, and, you know, and, and so, like, in America, you have this good separation of church and state, but, like, the religious culture is just, like, permeates in the religious places, and there's no escaping that. Whereas in Norway, it's like, here's the official religion and everyone is kind of assumed to belong to it, but nobody believes it, you know, which is very weird. Yeah. I think there's two factors might be like tangentially linked though, surely, isn't it? I mean, the fact that state religion probably does actually decrease. Oh, I don't think they're tangentially linked. I think <laughs> it's extremely causal and strong. <laughs> I mean, America is just a place of competitive religious sex and that makes those religious sex kind of stronger right. and, uh, you know, more competitive. While in England, it's just... It's you know, the Church of England is a state-run bureaucracy, and like a lot of state-run bureaucracies, is incredibly sluggish and slow, and uh, and actually destroys the thing. Yeah. The only place in England, strangely, where you have that kind of American-style separation is uh, if you go to secular weddings. You can't they go like you, 
you know, they say, what poem are you going to read? They go through the poem. And I've been at these and they say, and you know, I read I read a poem by Elizabeth Rand and say, hold on a minute, what does it say? Oh yeah, the second verse, it says angels. So you can't say that. You can't mention, like, you can't, and the poem is say, you can't mention heaven. Like literally any words, even remotely related to religion, <laughs> you can't read that poem. They say, yeah, this is a state, this is a state um, thing. That's the only place where you have the kind of, you know, that kind of, I, I mean, otherwise I think it's just, um, I think it's just kind of that awkwardness, isn't it? I went to a, I actually went to a lovely stave church in mm. Norway. It's gorgeous outside Oslo. Yeah. It been it was a classic Scandinavian story because it was it was been burnt down by like this black oh, metal yeah, guy yeah. who like, Varg Vikernes, yeah. killed fan mate or something. Yeah, that, uh, that whole whole scene in Norway. I mean, it's really bad music. I mean, as well as being a murderer I and mean, uh, Nazi, and maybe was he the one? Were well, the Nazis? I guess they were into kind of like the yeah, kind of Viking mythology. He also murdered probably. someone, and I can't remember if he's the one who murdered his bandmate. Yeah, Varg Vikernes. He's he's real bad. And then he he also I can't remember if he's the one who's also a cannibal or if that was someone else. Anyway, it's a problem. I think there was a whole like slew of them for a while. I remember that it was a kind of it was a very nineties moral panic. I seem to remember. We don't really get yeah. that. Every seems, but they they rebuilt the church exactly how it was. It's absolutely gorgeous. You know, no, there's no there's no even like nails or anything. It's all everything just fits into piece. Right, right, right. Like the ancient. It's kind of it's, it's kind of it's kind of anticipating Lego. You know, but it's. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe that is maybe. It's well, in the... what's what's so cool about the stave churches is that one of the reasons you have these ancient wooden churches that have persisted so long until some black metal asshole burns it down is, um, I think the argument is that Norway's so far north, you don't have the problem with bugs that you have in other climates, and so you're able to have. Yeah, yeah. So you're able to have like wood things that just like last way longer. Well, we'll see if um, you know with climate change that that holds up. Yeah, I don't know. I, I never thought about that. I just assumed because they didn't have like rocks. We're, we're, we're just we're just better carpenters yeah. than everyone else. That's just the secret. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> in long tradition, that's how you built the longboats that were able to you know cross the North Sea and attack England. So yeah, and, uh, yeah. yeah. You're pretty good at carpentry. The weird so. thing, and I yeah. would like your thought on this. The weird thing in Norway that my wife detected immediately. She's American. Is she's like. Your friends and like your cousins will introduce themselves. They're like, I'm a carpenter. And there's like not a hint of shame in their voice. Right. Whereas like even in America, someone who wasn't ashamed of being a carpenter, it's like there'd be a little bit of like, I'm a lower class than you. Right. And um, that was like the really crazy thing that she noticed when she was visiting was just like how blue collar. I mean, I have like friends who are like manual laborers who are doing better than I am because they're in Norway and Norwegian, you know? And I think that's one of the biggest contrasts between Norwegian culture and American specifically. That's a Scandinavian thing, isn't it? I think I, I've, I, I mean, surely carpenters are right. Right. I mean, that's, that's pretty prestigious. Good enough for JC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I found, I found that when you like, you know, uh, I don't know, I went to a Swedish wedding and it was kind of like, you meet people and say, yeah, I drive a tram or I, yeah, that kind of jobs, which, uh, I guess it's because in Scandinavia they're probably paid quite well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the time the prestige. There's this debate over here about so like getting you know like the issues. How do we get like carers and people like that to be more prestigious as a job so that you know people want to do it? Uh, and I think a lot of it just follows the money, right? Yeah. If something's paid well, then its status normally. I think because you know if, even if 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 I collected everyone's rubbish and I was paid two hundred grand, I would be high status. I don't care. I mean, how much poo I've got on my hand. <laughs> I mean, you're. Hit- your history with the Elizabethan era <laughs> proves that, right? Like actors used to be low class and now they're superstars because we just pay them a lot, right? Yeah, actors were like the lowest of the low. They were sort of levels of, you know, they're considered the same as prostitutes, yeah. basically. And um, and uh, I think they were banned in France from being involved in any politics because they were just considered sort of just deviant, subversives. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I got to admit, I think that seems like a pretty sensible <laughs> idea to me. I mean, <laughs> Like when's the last time an actor opened their mouth and you thought that was an interesting, well thought, <laughs> like you're a complete yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, so 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 anti celebrities in politics is your take. I take it. Yeah. Well, except the occasional one in a hundred who agrees with me, but yeah, yeah, but. yeah exactly. Um, Ed, speak, speaking about that, about politics, uh, what is going on in the UK? Why have the Tories been in power for so long? Uh, is Labour just completely incompetent? What's going on there? Well, we had, um, there was just a weird like combination of unlikely events, really, that stopped Labour. Well, so Labour lost in 2010, but they've been around for ages. So the Tories had a coalition with the Lib Dems, who were 
I don't even know how to describe the Lib Dems because they're not really anything. They're, they're kind of centre-left, but they're, they're kind of kooky centre-left. And, uh, and anyway, um, then what happened was that there was a kind of series of events that there was actually a by-election that started because there'd been a fight in the bar of the House of Commons where like a very drunk <laughs> Scottish MP punched someone. This is how it all started. And <laughs> there was a, because there was a by-election um, involved in that, by-elections when like an MP has to be recalled and a new MP voted in between elections. The head of the Labour Party, a guy called Ed Miliband, who was a bit of a, like a dweeby, um, kind of like the guy who was good at, you know, like ran the computer, who was top of the computer club at school, very like very nerdy, kind of laughed at a little bit, um, heart in the right place. But he changed the the membership rules as a result of that by-election, I can't remember how. Um, and so it basically, you know, from being like £30 a year to join the Labour Party, it went down to £3 a year. He wanted to... Uh, encourage like a wider selection of people to join the Labour Party. What it actually meant was massive like entryism to the Labour Party from like the radical left. Um, so they ended up the new, and then all the all the constituents, the MPs had their vote in the. So what they the, the do is the MPs in Parliament will vote to have a selection of of candidates for leadership to be sent to the, to the members, uh, and then so they had. Lots of MPs said, well, you know, we want to give the, the members a, like a, a wide selection of parties. So as well as the three like mainstream candidates, we'll, we'll vote for a fourth one who's like the most extreme left-wing uh, MP we have, Jeremy Corbyn, who'd been like a kind of cranky left-winger uh, for, like, for years and always voted against his own party. Um, like, I don't, I mean, there's no one really comparable in American politics. Like, he's, compared, he's not Bernie Sanders because he's much, he's much more um, leftist than Bernie Sanders. And... Um, Anyway, so he went to the party. By this stage, the party was completely taken over by like really like radical teachers from London, and like Corbyn wins an overwhelming majority. And and it's this point that cut a long story. So Corbyn takes over. The Labour go way to the left, uh, lose a lot of their support. But the complicated thing is now the Tories have to they have to announce the referendum result. Result they have to announce a referendum because of their own challenge from their own right wing uh, party to them, right. the UKIP. So they have to have this referendum. And normally, mo- like most of Tory MPs are pro-Remain and all of Labour and Liberal Democrats are pro-Remain, except a hardcore of leftist Labour Party members who are also anti-EU, but for like leftist reasons, because they want nationalisation and the EU stops that. So Jeremy Corbyn, who's basically a secret Brexiteer, so he's a prominent guy in, in the... So that causes a referendum to be lost by Remain because he's basically working... I mean, I'm almost certain he voted leave. And his chancellor... Uh, John McDonnell, who used to turn up at these May Day parades next to these like banners of Stalin and Mao. I mean, like you can imagine like how he was going to be in charge of the British economy. It was like it was so comical. So they, so they basically the referendum was basically lost because of that. Uh, and that, and the Tories, most of the Tories basically wanted to have this referendum because they wanted to sort of like get the issue done, but didn't actually want to leave the EU. And now they found that they had to leave the EU, and a lot of the Tory leadership basically left the party or left the cabinet because they didn't want to be any part of that. So what you had left was a, was a very um, reduced a reduced kind of thing. So to, to cut a long story short, so, you know, three years later, there's kind of basically uh, nothing gets done. Uh, but they can't do Brexit because no one can vote on the right Brexit. And eventually, MP, like, the another, yeah, another prime minister. So we've had David Cameron, he had to leave because he lost Brexit. Theresa May, she had to leave because she couldn't get the Brexit done. And so this time, Boris Johnson turns up. Um, he had been very popular with the, the sort of party, very charismatic guy. But he, the problem is he's a journalist and he's a really, like, messy, like, his whole personal life is... Compl- no one actually knows how many children he's got. That's the funny thing. Oh, I mean, like, literally no one knows. He's either eight or nine. It could be ten. I don't know. Even though he knows. He's got... He's had three marriages, um, at least two illegitimate children, um, which have sort of been covered up. He was, he's, he's like a compulsive womanizer. Um, which was kind of like, like he was a mayor of London, so it was tolerated. It was all kind of fun because he's quite yeah. a very liberal conservative and a kind of good time guy. And, um, you know, he just wants to be jolly and he's always quoting the classics and everyone yeah. found this quite amusing. And he was, and, you know, even though he was in charge of Brexit and that made him very unpopular with a lot of his kind of former sympathizers who, who felt he'd become sort of nationalistic. He, he wasn't really, he was nothing like Trump. He was like quite... Uh, just a fun guy. And he said, well, you know, and then finally he came to it in 2019, won a resounding general election victory. So Brexit was basically sorted for, you know, good deal. And at he point, he wants to be the kind of like jolly leader. So, well, now 
everything's going to be brilliant. And so, you know, January the 1st, 2020, he does this tweet saying, thumbs up, saying this is going to be a fantastic year for Britain. And, you know, <laughs> like nothing can go wrong. And then like four months later, he's in intensive care, almost dying of COVID. Um, and, it, you know, the whole economy is being completely ripped to pieces by the disease, which has just come out. I mean, but the, the, the funniest thing, so he kind of reigned in complete chaos. So the funniest story was he had to write this Shakespeare biography because he had to pay off his second divorce because during his, he had, like, while married to the second wife, he had started, like, an affair with a younger woman who worked in government who's now married to. Uh, and by the time, he's, like, the perfect symbol of, like, our generation because, in a sense, when he came to Downing Street, he was literally homeless. He'd been kicked out with his wife. He was living oh on the... He's living with his girlfriend in her place in Campbell. He'd have a stand-up blazing row with her, which became a story. Um, um, they'd, I think, like his, the neighbors had reported like screaming, and you know there's been wine thrown. It's just like this guy is so chaotic. He, he's really, you know, it's very slapdash. So while all these like the the Cobra, who are the British Security Council, they they deal with imminent threats. And so January 2020 is saying like, uh, there's this kind of disease in China. We've got to like, we're gonna have these meetings. Like, we're gonna have a meeting again. Like, and he's like, well, it's fine, fine. Just you know, I've got to write, finish the bloody biography. Uh, so he failed to apparently turn up to five of these oh meetings. My gosh. Um, so well, you know, and they've said, I think we should, you know, you should take this seriously, sir. This is like looking quite serious, and uh, nothing done. So then he just kind of hesitated, uh, hesitated, hesitated. Um, you know, I, I think the the history of the COVID response will be debated forever. But I mean, I think he was very slow. And by the time we locked down, we had to lock down for a long time because it was already kind of riddled the thing. And he was going around hugging everyone. And then he gets it himself. Um, and he's like quite an overweight guy. So he almost dies, um, which a lot of people deny. You know, there's a big conspiracy theory. He never had COVID because a lot of people have just been driven mental by politics and think, you know, it's all fake. Um, so he survives, comes out again, by which time I think he's, he's impregnated his wife yet again. And now it's like number seven or eight ch children. Come on. And there's been another one since. Um, but then he was brought down by this like incredibly stupid scandal. Cause while they were all, you know, while everyone has been ordered to, uh, lock down and not meet anyone, they were all sort of having like regular parties at Downing Street. And this eventually came out a year later. I mean, I think it was kind of the stupidest, it was like the least probably bad thing he didn't, did, um, it was kind of you know Al Capone getting done for tax because it's just stupid reason. I mean, some of these parties weren't they weren't they were like drinks in the office. That some, yeah. literally someone would bring like a beer to one of his colleagues, and it was classified as a party, and so everyone got scandal. And I think there was a real sense of, um, I mean, I'm sure the same in the states that people there was a kind of very puritanical thing of like I've got to stop other people having parties or having fun, even in a situation where it wasn't particularly risky because people, I guess, naturally like attach like moral weight to like a virus so like if you're having a good time if you're doing something that's a bit seedy or squalid or even just fun and i'm not involved like the disease is more likely to spread than um than otherwise and there was you know that that scandal just kind of rolled on and on and on until um until basically all the party deserted him i mean the, the i mean i think that the shakespeare thing's funny i think the lowest point was so he's it's a kind of classic story, and like Henry VIII is, is the obvious parallel. Henry VIII left his older, sensible wife for a younger woman he was attracted to, and this kind of basically led to chaos um, within the regime. And um, and this younger wife was opposed by his chief minister, who was Cromwell in the case of Henry VIII, and was Dominic Cummings, who has since resigning has become a very strong critic of Boris and the entire sort of British government and how the establishment. And he despises Kerry, obviously. Uh, who's Boris's wife. Um, but, you know, there's this kind of thing, he's like you know, under the influence of the younger wife. And one of the, the lowest points was during the evacuation of Afghanistan, Boris personally ordered for the British army and the RAF to evacuate this bunch of dogs, which was like, the lowest point. <laughs> they literally left like, this, all, like the Afghans there and they evacuated all these dogs because Carrie was like friends or, or like sympathetic to this, this animal charity, which was like saving all the, oh, the street no. dogs before. And there was just all these footage of like these dogs being there. It's like you're literally risking the lives of like servicemen. It's like the stupidest thing. It's like a real that typically British sentimentality about everything. Uh, it was I must say like Palmerston and like Churchill like turning in their graves, thinking how the country has come. Right, the, the Kabul dog airlift, and uh, to me yeah, that was just the lowest point of everything. And so I mean I think there is just general like dysfunction in the government, which like nothing. 
on some levels it's ideological and that they can't kind of get conservative ideas implemented against like resistance from uh you know like obviously like the the most departments tend to be because they're university educated dominated tend to be like right. more left wing uh and there's a lot of resistance in the civil service but a lot of it is just kind of basically um functional you know then they're, they're just not very effective at, ru- at running a lot of things with the exception of michael gove i mean dominic cummings who's like he write he writes these like nine thousand word blog mm-hmm. posts i mean he's always quoting like cities yep. and like uh prussian generals and stuff he had this famous quote about british government like how nothing works and he he said you know everyone thinks that if they go deep inside the government, there'll be like a place, like a door, where behind there, there is like loads of ninjas and like, it's like a, like a Bond yeah. villain's lair where everything actually works. And he said, well, there are no ninjas, there is no door. And I think that's just like the best quote. I always see it repeated by people that actually there isn't, there aren't really clever people deep down running the country. It's all, um, it's just kind of incompetence all the way down. So, um, yeah, so now Liz Trust has taken over and, you know, it's just happened to, kind of you know take over just as this kind of massive crisis i mean the one thing boris has, i think has been very good on is ukraine so i mean i mean i don't you know i don't know what historians will say about that future but you know the policy very very early on he was he was very supportive as it was kind of clear that russia was about to attack um you know i, I think um you know i generally think he should be made ambassador to Kiev. I think he'd be amazing. He'd love it there. And they'd love him there. He's like generally loved. And, you know, it's a country full of very attractive blonde women. He'll, I'm sure he'd, he'd absolutely love it there. Um, but yeah, I guess that, I mean, that his legacy is basically, that's going to be the country where he's, he's loved just like, you know, Tony Blair's loved in Kosovo, mm. but kind of like hated here. Yeah. So there we Man, are. We covered a lot of territory today. You know, one thing to tie two threads together is it's funny that you kind of like mentioned like Norway's doing great. You know what's not doing great is if you want to afford a house in Oslo because um, no right. one can afford it and it's just like going, it's not getting better anytime soon either. You know, so everything else seems to be going okay, but like just man, like I, I see the like the prices people are paying for rent. Can they not build out at all? Do they not? Have, I mean, that seems, I mean, I know that's it's harder said, easier said than done. Yeah. Uh, there's a big well, like Norway has, like, is is more constrained geographically than Sweden. Sweden's, I know, but there is, I mean, it's fjords, isn't it? Really? Right, and mountains, right? Mountains, you know, yeah. but it's also, I mean, it's nimbyism. It's you know, people, you know, it's all the land policy stuff, right? You know, I mean, I've I've dropped the word Georgism, so you know where I come from, you know, um, which is something I'm trying to kind of push back in Norway, but you know. Can't, um- they build an island. The Danes are building an island in Copenhagen. Are they? Just, just to get around. Yeah, 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 just, yeah. I mean, I mean going, yeah. going, going full Dutch, you know, seems, yeah, seems yeah. like not a bad approach. You know, but I think, I think, you know, what, what do you think of Yimbyism and Georgism and all these other like things to kind of like make land policy and housing kind of the center of our politics? I don't remember housing being something anyone ever used to talk about. Now it seems like every, yeah. the only thing anyone ever talks about now. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's just, it used to be a sort of dinner party thing. I remember people, I mean, like people a bit older than me talk about, din- you know, house prices and stuff. And that just sort of stopped, I seems one day. No one ever, t- it's like depressing. Like, why would yeah. you talk about it? It's just like, we're never going right. to, um, it just became completely unaffordable. Um, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the Yimbies. I, I mean, like, I'm like a much more, concern- I'm like a right Yimby, if that's a thing. Yeah. So like, most of my Yimby friends who are, you know, were very, really like very pro- pretty much freedom of movement between like loads of, you know, open borders. I mean, I think in Britain, we've got like a million people coming. You have to, you know, I think there's only so much you can do if, if you have that much um, immigration because your land prices are still going to go up. I mean, it's, it seems to me um, the demand and supply issue. I, I mean, I do think the style of architecture makes a big difference. Although, I mean, that's not going to stop. I mean, I think NIMBYism is just everyone's default, right? Everyone's going to be a NIMBY. And whether you, there's like a like a concrete monstrosity next door to you or like a beautiful Moorish palace, whatever, you're gonna most people will oppose it. But I think people do have like, are given uh like greater moral support by the fact that they know that like in my experience, whenever there's been new buildings, new builds in my area, they've always been hideous. And like the more hideous, the more likely they're gonna win an architect architecture award. I mean, that's right. just like a like a I went, universal rule. I went to architecture school, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like there's, there's no I met someone from I was at dinner party with someone who was a very nice woman from uh Canada she's an architect and and I made the joke about like 
you know, like an architecture award being like a negative single. And, and, and another friend, you know, just said like, don't, you know, don't you realize like everyone <laughs> thinks, right? I mean, it goes without saying if something, if something wins an architecture award, like that's, a, that's a nightmarish. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Do the Germans have like quite a good idea in that? Um, so it's like a local, so in a lot of small towns, and this is like the same everywhere, there are like small towns which are very desirable, but the, the local it, like wage isn't very high. Like Cornwall is a classic example. Cornwall is a very n- nice land of misty mountains, you know, Prince King Arthur and all that. Um, but Cornwall is actually very poor. It's the poorest county in England. And so lots of people come from London and buy a property in Ball. And, and obviously if you're a local, it's like, I can't afford anything. I can't afford a home. Um, but the Germans have a system where like a certain amount of the, they have new builds built every year in a, from a city, but like a certain percentage can only be bought by local people. I don't know how you measure that. It's like whether you're born there or like live 15 years, but there has to be some local attachment. And that way you say to people, well, okay, we're building houses, which you might not like, but like only, you know, your children have a prime chance to buy these. Right. And as the way I see it, I mean, it's only fair, L- London salaries are much bigger. It's only fair that Londoners should pay more than uh, the local people. Um, and also, I mean, the main like policy, the most important thing policy wise is that the things get built, right? I mean, right. Just whether it's however you get who it buys them is kind of secondary. Uh, I mean, I, I'm kind of less. I mean, I you know, social housing is another issue, but I mean, Britain already has a very high level of social housing compared to you know the rest of um, the rest of the world. I think we're like by far the, the highest in the Western world, uh, but. You know, the, the, I find the frustrating thing is the kind of the constant grumbles like, oh, we, we must stop this, these flats from being built because they're not affordable. It's like, yeah, but that's because you block every single flat that every single building it's ever made. That's why they're unaffordable. It's like basic like supply and demand. And exactly. no one seems to... Yeah, it's like... We, we, yeah, and there's very few MPs who will say, you know, all their constituents want to like, you want to stop this new building. And, and like, some of them have been like ridiculous. There's one in London recently and they... Uh, they stopped these buildings in cent- central-ish London. No, it's in Barnet. It's in the outskirts again because there was a gas works there. It's like this is literally gas works. <laughs> like it's not. It's not the seven wonders of the world. I think we could. Li- you can live with the gas works being adapted. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's the historic parking lot kind of issue, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, there is. Isn't there like a, a quite a a serious link between parking spaces and fertility? Like parking is literally destroying Western civilization. Oh, for sure. The more parking spaces you have, the fewer children. Yeah, yeah. And that's why we'll all die out because of just so people can drive to the shops. I mean, it's in, right. Yeah, I find yeah. it it's frustrating. Yeah, very frustrating. <laughs> well, um, Ed, we've got to let you go uh, uh, now. I thank you, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Really appreciate it. Learned a ton. Um, thanks again. Uh, where can people find you? Where should we send them? Uh, go to the Substack. Just. Uh, type in wrong side of history, Ed West Substack, that should get you. I don't actually know the exact um, address, but that, that will get you there. But yeah, definitely go to my Substack and subscribe for free just to start with, and then you can pay later. Yeah, or, or just pay up front. Just, just, just pay up front. You know, you know, pay for a year. Just to, yeah, put in that credit card. Awesome. Well, thanks, Ed. All right, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Take care. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.